If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel, and this will be the last time that those words will be uttered from this place for a long time, because we are finishing Matthew's Gospel this morning. So two years later, here we are, the final chapter um, in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 20, we're actually going to pick up the last section of Matthew 27, and then we will we'll look, we'll cover all of chapter 28, and I'll read that in just a second. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bible in front of you, uh, in the pew back in front of you, um, and it is on page 835 in that if you uh, would like to follow along. That'll be important for you this, this morning as we study these verses. Um, but, but as there's so much going on, I wanna be helpful, so here's our main idea to help you focus and, and not think about what's coming later tonight or tomorrow. So the focus this morning for the rest of our time together is, here's the main idea. The commission, or the great commission, of the resurrected Christ establishes the mission of the church. The commission of the resurrected Christ establishes the mission of the church. That's what we're gonna see in these verses. Now, because as, as we've been studying through Matthew's gospel, we, we come to the end, but the end of the gospel is not the account of the resurrection. That's not where he ends. The end of the gospel is the commission that follows the resurrection, the great commission that comes after he has been raised, which means that while the resurrection is essential, there's no question about the significance and the reality of the resurrection, but Matthew doesn't want us to leave his gospel marveling at the empty tomb only. He wants us to leave the gospel recognizing that the resurrection set in motion a mission We're to leave the Gospel of Matthew with marching orders, as it were, marching orders that have come from the resurrected King of Kings who has raised victorious, been risen victorious over sin and death. So if you will follow along, I'm gonna read our verses. I'm gonna begin in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, and then I'll read through the end of chapter 28. So Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62, this is what Matthew records The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered gathered before Pilate and they said, sir, we remember that the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and then they tell the people he's risen from the dead. Then the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28, verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to, the, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they, that is the women, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. 
Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole away, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray for us as we, as we begin by looking at these verses. Now, Father, we are thankful to be gathered as your people this morning. And as we gather, we want your word to be our teacher. We want the truth of this word, the reality of this resurrection, this commission to drive us as your people, but, but also to drive this church. And so we pray that the, 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 the truth of this passage would encourage us and help us to faithfully follow you as individuals and as a church. We need your help to do this, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, here, here's the outline. There's four points that we're going to work through um, to, to cover this. And the focus is resurrection. And so you see, we'll see first, the, the last section of chapter 27, we'll see the resurrection opposed. And then next, the second point, we'll see the resurrection witnessed. That's the first 10 verses of chapter 28. And then third, the resurrection ignored, where we see these, these leaders who, who see clearly what happened, but they ignore it and, and deny it. And then finally, the resurrection proclaimed, which is the, the, the great commission that forms kind of the, the, the climax of this time. So those are the four points. And even as we go, you'll, you'll see there, there's kind of two sides here. So there's his opponents who in, in points one and three, they oppose and ignore the resurrection. On the other side, there's his followers who they witness it and then they obey him and proclaim it. So there, there's contrast here between how, how the, the opponents of Jesus respond to the resurrection and those who follow him uh, respond to the resurrection. So that, that's kind of at work as we, as we go through and you'll see as we go through here. So first, the resurrection opposed verses 62 through 66 of chapter 27. And so as we pick up these verses, we remember that last week we left off with Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, asking Pilate for the body of Jesus and, and being granted the body. And then he goes and lays Jesus, the body of Jesus, in his tomb. And, and there were two women that Matthew says were there and saw where Jesus was laid. They, they saw the tomb that he was laying in. And so in, in verse 62, it picks up the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the pre chief priests and Pharisees, they gather before Pilate and they, they say, hey, we remember that the imposter, they won't even say Jesus, that imposter, that fraud, while he was alive, he said, I'm gonna rise three days later. We don't believe that's gonna happen, but can, can you at least secure the tomb just in case his disciples want to, want to kind of stage this resurrection? And then, and then that, that fraud will be worse than the first. The first fraud is him saying he could do it, but the second fraud will be then his disciples tricking everyone into believing that it could actually happen. And so Matthew tells us that after the day of preparation, which is just Matthew's roundabout way of talking about the Sabbath, 
So now we're on the Sabbath, we're on the Saturday, and they go to them and they ask this. Jesus was crucified and buried on Friday, and the next day, which is a Sabbath, the religious leaders come to Pilate with a request, or you could say a demand. They, they say, why don't you secure it? And so they, they are afraid of, of what might happen. In fact, if you think about these religious leaders, they've been opposing Jesus for so long that they finally, they've, they finally won and they've crucified him and killed him, and so they, they don't want anything to, to, to keep going after his death. So they want to prevent anything from happening that might, might undermine the, the fraud, na- fraud-like nature of Jesus and his ministry. So, so they want to make sure that he stays in the tomb and that no one is deceived. And so they go to Pilate, and Pilate responds, verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers. So, so take, take your soldiers. These are temple leaders, and so the, the, the Roman governor, he, he gives Roman help, Roman authority to guard the tomb. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they go and they do it by sealing the stone, Matthew says, and setting a guard. And so they do what they want to do. Pilate gives them permission. But the irony here is, is that in so doing, in doing that, they don't actually prevent the resurrection. Instead, they ensure that the tomb was as secure as possible and that the theory of someone stealing the body is actually impossible because it's secured and sealed. The, the precautions of his enemies would underlie the truth of his resurrection. So, so it's been sealed and it's guarded, so, so no one is gonna take it. So then the fact that he's gone only increases the reality of this is what happened. He rose. But it's even more ironic, as we'll see when we get to the third point, is that because of the false claim, that, well, the false claim that these, these leaders end up spreading is that the disciples stole the body. When they go to Pilate, the very thing they want to prevent from happening is their disciples being able to say, someone stole the body, but that's what they end up saying anyways. That's the irony here. And I think we see the futility in opposing God's plan. They can't do it. You can't oppose God's plan. You can't prevent his will from being carried out, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew when the, the resurrection of the son is at stake. Well, well so that's the first. They, they oppose it. Um, but then we get to the second point in, in chapter 28, verses one through 10, the resurrection witnessed. And so as we come to, to Matthew's account of this resurrection, one of the, the beneficial things, I think, in going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, is that it's, it's Sunday, December 24th, and we're studying a passage about the resurrection. I think that's helpful. It's not a bad thing, but, but I would guess that most of the time you've heard a sermon on the resurrection, it was, it was sometime in maybe late March or probably in April with the resurrection because that's when we tend to preach this passage on Easter Sunday. But when you preach on Easter Sunday, your focus is on the resurrection, which that's not bad. But when we come to Matthew 28, after 27 chapters prior, after hearing 84 sermons, through Matthew's gospel, we, we get a better perspective on what's going on here. We, we come to the resurrection with a broader scope. We, we get a feel for what Matthew's purpose in this gospel is. Because he didn't write the whole, whole gospel. He didn't write chapter 28 just so Christians on one day a year could focus on the resurrection. He writes this whole gospel to encourage the church. So, so when we get to it now, having come where we've come from, we can look at it and I think learn better what Matthew's point is. And so in Matthew's account, there's some things he leaves out, some things he adds that that are different from the other gospel accounts. And and we have to recognize that Matthew is telling this gospel according to his plan. He he is writing his account. John is writing his account. Luke is writing his account. Mark is writing his account. And each writer brings to their their account a unique perspective, which is actually pretty strong evidence for their authenticity. The disciples aren't all getting together saying, okay, we need to have an official account of what happened. 
So let's have a council and have an official account. No, they are, they're just writing their accounts and all four are reconcilable, but they're unique. And, and so Matthew's not saying, oh my goodness, I've got to add this detail to the resurrection account because, because my friend Mark has, has added this account and I've got to harmonize them. No, he's just writing from eyewitness account and firsthand witness what happened. And all four have a unique perspective. And so when we come to Matthew, notice verse one, how he records it. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And so the Sabbath would have ended at sundown on, on Saturday night. And the women, as, as day breaks, they can't do anything while it's dark at night. And so as day begins to break, they go to visit the tomb. Now, Matthew doesn't say why they're going. We don't have to know why, but, but the other gospel accounts tell us that they, they have spices. They're going to, to complete this burial process because they, it appears as though Jesus was buried in a hurry. They had to get him down off the cross and in the grave before the Sabbath so that they couldn't, because they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. And so they're going to complete this process by taking spices, but they go, verse two, and behold, there's a great earthquake. Four, here's the cause of the earthquake. It's not this, just a, a cosmic sign, but it seems to be a reaction of what happens. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So they go to the tomb and this earthquake happens because this angel descends to the earth at the tomb. And this angel rolls back the stone and he sits on it, which was not something that he did so that Jesus could get out. I remember as a kid, maybe it was all the, the Sunday school lessons, but I remember thinking, I'm so glad the angel rolled back the stone so that Jesus could walk out. That's not why he rolled back the stone. Jesus had plenty of authority to roll it back on his own. And in fact, we, we learned from later resurrection appearances, Jesus actually could have just walked through the stone. Didn't have to be rolled back. So the stone is rolled away. Jesus is gone at this point, but it's rolled away so that others could see in. So that the world could say, the tomb is actually empty, as he said. So it's not that so that Jesus could get out, it's so that the witnesses could see that it was actually true. And so the angel comes and, and rolls away the tomb and it's fascinating, the appearance of the, this angel has quite an adverse effect on these soldiers. Verse four, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So, so you have these Roman soldiers, I, I sure, I, I'm assuming they have their, their armor on or, or, or something to, to distinguish them and this angel appears and they fall down as though dead, they pass out. They're unconscious, just laying on the ground beside the tomb that they were charged with guarding. The irony is, is not to be missed. One commentator puts it this, this way. The ones assigned to guard the dead themselves appear to be dead while the dead now have been made alive. See, soldiers, they're, they're to, to prevent the dead from getting out, but now they're dead and the, the, the dead are out. That's the irony here. And so, again, look at the futility of opposing God's plan. The, the men in the sealed tomb, it's, it's now all been undone. And the angel said to these women who aren't like dead men now, they, they're not knocked out by this appearance of the angel, but the angel says to them, verse five, don't be afraid for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Again, here's why the stones were rolled away. These women are the first human eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Can you imagine? They saw Joseph put the body in the tomb. And they saw Joseph put the stone there and now they, the stone is gone and they look in and there's no body. Can you imagine these women and, and what's going through their minds as, as they're experiencing and eyewitness, eyewitnesses to this miraculous event? It was empty, he was risen. But the angel has a mission for them. 
Come see where he laid, but, but don't stay there because you've got a job. Verse seven, go quickly, tell his disciples that he's risen. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him. See, I've told you that the angel sends them. Verse eight, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and they ran to tell his disciples. I wonder what, what, what pace their, their mile pace was in this run. Right? They, they're probably running as fast as they've ever ridden, run in their whole life. And so they're, they're going with the mission. I mean, their world had been turned upside down with the news of this resurrection. And so they're, they're running back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. But their run is cut short, isn't it? Verse nine, that this word that Matthew used, uses throughout this account, behold, he uses it again in verse nine. And behold, Paul's look, Jesus met them. They're on their way to tell about the resurrected Jesus. They haven't seen him. They've seen the, the lack of him in the tomb, but now they see him and he says, greetings. He greets them and they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So, so see, the, the, the ladies, these women, along with the disciples later, when, when they encounter the resurrected Christ, there's no hesitation to give this one full and complete honor and worship. They see him and they worship immediately. And, and this is indeed the correct response to an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Jesus doesn't say, get up. Remember in the, in the book of Revelation, there's a vision and, and John falls down to worship it and the angel says, I'm, I'm like you, I'm not, don't worship me. Jesus doesn't do that here. He doesn't say, get up, I don't deserve your worship. He doesn't refuse it, but instead, he receives it and accepts it because it is right and fitting for them to worship the Lord, which is who is standing before them. And so the, Jesus tells these women, just like the angel told these women, go, tell my brothers, tell my disciples to go to Galilee, which Jesus had said back all the way back in chapter 26 when he's on the Mount of Olives, he tells Peter and the others, after I'm raised up, I'm gonna go before you to Galilee. And so he's, he's confirming what he promised. He's going to be where he said. And so these women, with joy and excitement and all these other emotions overwhelming, they, they make their way back to Jerusalem with the news of a resurrection, which we just have to look at this and recognize that despite Jesus predicting his resurrection and telling his disciples multiple times, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, handed over to evil men, but I will be raised later. I will be raised. Three days later, I'll be raised. He said that, but despite that, this resurrection was not expected by any of his followers. It's a resurrection, this resurrection comes as a complete shock to all of his followers. This is another main thing that all the gospel accounts bring out. Each gospel account, this is what Leon Morris says, a commentator, each tells of something completely unexpected when they recount the resurrection. It's clear that despite the teaching of Jesus, his followers had no expectation that he would rise from the dead. Which is why these ladies go from sorrow, they don't go to the grave expecting to, to find it empty, the tomb, they go from sorrow to unexplainable joy at the news and interaction with this resurrected Christ. And they can't wait to get back to the disciples to tell the good news. They get to tell the news, it's, it, it's empty. And so they run to tell the good news. Before we get there to their interaction, Matthew shifts from the joy of the followers at the news of the resurrection to now we go to, back to his opponents to the, the problem that faces the religious leaders and the soldiers at the news of the resurrection. See this contrast. So look at the resurrection ignored, verses 11 through 15 of chapter 28. So Matthew picks up, verse 11, while they, that is the ladies, is the women, as they're going, they're going back to Jerusalem, behold, 
some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And so these, these events are coinciding and they're going back to Jerusalem. I imagine the, the pace of the women were much faster than the pace of the soldiers. But Matthew says that some of the guard, we don't know what happened to the other guard, but some of them are going into the city to report back, not to, not to Pilate, but to report back to the chief priests. Chief priests were the ones that had, that had commissioned them who had been most concerned about the two mean guards, so they're going back to the chief priests. And, and this is certainly accompanied by embarrassment on the, on the part of these soldiers. They're not going back with shoulders up and or shoulders high and chest out. In fact, the reason that some of them probably didn't go back is because they were possibly afraid of being killed because they had not done their job. But some of them go back and report to the chief priest all that had happened. Now, we don't know what they saw, all that had happened. We don't know what this means. What was all that had happened? What did they know? All that had taken place. All we know is that the tomb was empty, the stone had been rolled away, and, and the body was gone. Their, their mission had failed, and so going back to these Jewish leaders and reporting, the tomb's empty. Verse 12, now, now certainly they, they told them, we saw an angel, and next thing we know, no one's there, and, 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 and we're here. But verse 12 so they tell the chief priest, and then the chief priest assembled with the elders, and they'd taken counsel, not an official counsel, but, but they're, they're in, in crisis mode, and they do what they do best. They gave a sufficient sum of, sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, is that true? It's not true. So, so they say, we're going to pay you to lie. Right? So we're going to give you money, a, a, a sufficient sum of money. We don't know that, what that sufficient sum is, sum is. For Judas, it was 30 pieces. We don't know what the sufficient sum is, but, but the religious leaders give money to the soldiers to spread a lie. And in order for the, the soldiers to do this, they give them money, and then they say, hey, if, if Pilate comes to us, we'll take care of you. We'll make sure you're not in trouble. So the, 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 the soldiers took the money and did as they directed Money is passing from the hands of religious leaders to those that are being used to oppose as pawns in their plan to either get information or spread false information. So just like in the case of Judas here, in the case of the soldiers, the religious leaders use money to ensure that their plans are protected. We just have to recognize what a tragic reality for religious leaders of that day. I mean, the religious leaders of any day to use money to cover up or to manipulate circumstances to, to cover the truth. Is a tragic reality. But as these soldiers, or as these religious leaders devise this, this fake news that's gonna be spread concerning the empty tomb, I have to wonder if any of the soldiers had second thoughts about the man that had been crucified. If any of them thought, I, I don't know, that this, maybe there was something to this man. We, we don't know what the soldiers, how the soldiers react, but Matthew does make clear that in the case of the religious leaders, they don't give one moment's notice to the reality of what's taken place. They're so dead set on rejecting and destroying Jesus that his resurrection from the dead doesn't even give them pause. Instead, their immediate response is to decide how to control the situation, how to spin the story to prevent the truth from spreading. And so they spread a lie to combat the truth. Tell everyone you, while you're sleeping, the disciples came and took the body. Right, so that, that's the agreement. So the soldiers did what they were directed. Verse 15 Matthew ends verse 15, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, which is a fascinating addition that Matthew wants, wants his readers to know. And, and as you think about it, it's, it's probably fascinating that, that as the first readers of Matthew's gospel are reading this account, they probably have 
family members or neighbors or, or they know people who have been convinced by the stolen body conspiracy theory. And so here they are reading Matthew's gospel and learning from firsthand eyewitness accounts where that theory originated, which would certainly be an encouragement to the early church who's being confronted with these types of attacks. And so it's fascinating that, that, that now Matthew's saying, oh, and this story, it's still being believed now, but just so you know, that it's a story that's been made up and here's how it came. And another thing to recognize just about this theory in and of itself, it's a theory that is forced to address the empty tomb. Now, so, so this conspiracy theory that spread, it has to deal with reality, which is that the tomb was empty. If the body had still been in the tomb, there'd be no need for this false testimony to be spread. Right? If the body was still there, the solution is simply go get the body. We'll put him back on the cross. We'll put him back in, in the body with everyone else. But the fact that this conspiracy theory attempted to explain an empty tomb means the tomb was empty. It was empty. They had to deal with the reality, which was an empty tomb. And instead of believing the most likely of all possibilities that he actually was who he said he was and did what he said he would do, they decide to spread lies about it. And so we see the enemies of Jesus have unsuccessfully opposed the resurrection and now they've also unsuccessfully tried to prevent the spreading of this miraculous news, which leads to the final section, verses 16 through 20, the resurrection proclaimed. And so Matthew actually doesn't record for us the interaction between the ladies and the disciples. He fast forwards to the meeting between Jesus and his disciples in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Just like the women went and told them, now the disciples hear the news and they go to Galilee to the mountain which with, to which Jesus had directed them. So they're, they're obeying the commands of this Jesus. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But, Matthew says, some doubted. Now, I don't have any problem with them worshiping him. That's what the women did, so that's what the majority of these disciples do. They see him and they worship him, which is the fitting and right response. But Matthew adds, but some doubted. And there's a lot of discussion and disagreement. What does this mean? Now, the nature of this doubt is, is, what's, is, is what's, what's discussed and, and what's not clear. Because sometimes the idea of doubt can be representative of a, a settled unbelief, a convictioned belief, a hard-hearted refusal to believe. Now, that's not the case here. It's not the case that some of the disciples see the resurrected Christ and say, I will never believe. That is not him, I'm convinced a settled heart of stone that refuses to believe. That's not the case here. Instead, the doubt here, it simply conveys an idea of, of hesitation or slowness to actually believe what's before their very eyes. A doubt that simply conveys the reality of the situation at hand. These 11 weren't expecting a resurrection. And so the lady said that they had seen him and the lady said, go and you'll meet him. And now they see him and they literally hesitated to believe. And I think we can all relate to, to when something is too good to be true, we, we, we innately or instinctively respond, I can't believe that. This is too good to be true. It can't be true. Right? And I think, that's, I think that's the doubt here. That they can't believe that the one that they had forsaken and betrayed now is before them wanting to meet with them and, and greet them. And so I, I think the 11... It's clear that they all eventually come around to recognize the reality of the once dead and buried Jesus now standing before them. And I think they all, it's safe to say, eventually worshiped him. They all came around to recognize, oh, this is my Lord and my God. 
like Thomas in, in John's account. And so they, they, they encounter the resurrected Christ, but Matthew doesn't end the, his gospel there. He could. They meet him and they all live happily ever after. Go see the book of Acts for the next part. He could have ended his gospel there, but he doesn't. He's not done yet because there's something left to record. Because the point of the gospel isn't simply to give proof to the reality of the resurrection. That's certainly part of it. But more than that, Matthew wants the early church to know what the resurrected Jesus says to his disciples. Matthew wants his followers and the followers of Christ to hear the great commission that was given to the 11 as well as to those who would come after them. So that's what he does beginning in verse 16. Jesus meets with them in Galilee and he came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you've never quite known what people mean when they talk about the Great Commission, maybe you've heard that term but don't, don't know what they're talking about, this is the Great Commission. When people talk about the Great Commission, this is what they're talking about. The, the last words from Jesus in Matthew's gospel is what is known as the Great Commission. And this commission of the resurrected Christ establishes the mission of the church. And we see this great commission being carried out in the book of Acts, in the record of the early church and throughout the rest of the New Testament. But Matthew ends with the commission because he wants the followers of Christ to know what Jesus commanded them to do in his absence, in his ascent. And so I just want to look at this great commission and there's two parts of this. First, there's the promises that support the commission and then there's the content of the commission itself. So the promises sandwich the content so it's promise, content, promise. So, so look at first the promises. Verse 18, first promise, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right, this is promise number one, all authority. Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's no authority outside of this possession of Jesus. So that, that's the first promise and we have to think carefully about this because in one sense, Jesus never lacked authority. I mean, as the second person of the Trinity, the word in the beginning, did he ever lack any power or authority? Well, in one sense, of course he didn't. That's what it means to be God, to be all powerful. That's an attribute of, the God, of, of God himself. It's what it means to be God. So we have to think carefully because what Jesus doesn't mean is that during his incarnation, he ceases to be God. If you could cease to be God, you're not God. So he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that he ceases to have all power and authority as a member of the triune Godhead. That isn't what, he's, what he means. As the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, he never lacks authority. So, so what does he mean? Because he says, all authority has been given to me. Well, first consider what happened to the word. I mean, what do we celebrate here at Christmas? We celebrate the word becoming flesh. The, the, the word that we use is the incarnation, the infleshing of the divine word. Jesus doesn't cease to be God, but he does add something to his divinity, namely humanity, true humanity. God becomes a man. That's what happens. That's what we, that's what we celebrate, the, the mysterious incarnation. The virgin gave birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us, because God was with us in the birth of the son. And the reason behind the incarnation, the reason we celebrate the birth is because the word became flesh to save his people. 
That is the reason, that's the result of the incarnation and the reason that he is incarnate is to carry out salvation. And in this one child born in Bethlehem who would grow up and who would minister on the earth with these disciples, this one person, you have two natures, fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. So on the one hand, listen, listen to this. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, fully God, on the other hand, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Fully God, fully man. The result, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That's what happens in the incarnation, which means that when Jesus is born and when Jesus suffers and dies on the cross and when Jesus rises from the dead, he is given new authority. He is risen with new authority and that's the authority of the victorious son of David. The one who humbled himself and suffered and died according to the will of the Father. I, just, I, wanna, I want you to listen to this passage from Philippians 2. And listen to the language that Paul used to describe this descent and ascent. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken advantage of, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, there's the descent. Humbles himself, takes on flesh, obedient to death, even crucifixion. Verse nine of Philippians two. Therefore, the result of this humbling, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is what? Above every name. It's a new name given to the resurrected son of man. That's above every name, so that, Paul continues, at the name of Jesus, not the name of, of, of the, the, the eternal word, but the incarnate word, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Adonai, is God, to the glory of God the Father. And so the authority that Jesus talks about is the authority that's been given to the victorious king, the conquering king, the son of man who has accomplished salvation for his people, the, the true son of David. And the result of his death and resurrection is new authority. And it is an authority that did not belong to the second person of the Trinity because it's an authority that can only be properly given to the crucified, buried, and victorious, victoriously resurrected son of man. So that now he has that authority and Jesus is never not gonna be Jesus again. He is incarnate for all of eternity and he has been raised as a victorious son of man. Which is why Jesus, it's, it's important to recognize that he understands himself in light of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. Which is what he said he, when he talked to the high priest earlier in chapter 26. To him, to this one like a son of man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will never pass away. His kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus is the true son of man that has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So that's what he wants his disciples to know that. The commission he's issuing is not gonna fail because he has all authority, that's the first promise. But look at the second promise, there at the end, at the end of verse 20. 
All authority has been given to me, but at the end, behold, I am with you until the end of the age. So not only does he promise he has authority to guarantee a successful carrying out of the commission, but he also promises his presence with his disciples for all time. In fact, this promise here is, is, is an echo of the name given to him at his birth. All the way back in chapter one, verse 23, when, when, when Mary is told, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So he's with us in the birth, but here Jesus at the very end of the gospel is saying, I'm gonna be with you until the end of the age. The gospel ends with Emmanuel with which it began, God with us. And so Jesus is giving his disciples great reason for hope and confidence as he commissions them. A promise of, of his presence, but also a promise of ability. I'm gonna be with you. You don't have to worry. I'm not sending you out to try and make this whole Christian faith thing work on your own. I'm not leaving you. I'm gonna actually be with you to encourage you and then to help you, to give you authority and power as you do this. And he says, until the end of the age, at which point we should know that they're not gonna walk alone then, but then at the end of the age, he'll be back with them. And so these are the two promises that sandwich this great commission, but what's the content? Look at verse 19 and 20. The, The content, the main thing to notice about the content of this commission is the main verb. So so all you grammar students, listen here. I'm gonna read the the content of the commission. See if you can pick pick out the main verb. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and of the Son and and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's one sentence. There's one main verb. Can you tell what it is? It's not go. That's a participle. He says, go make disciples. That's the verb. Make disciples. That's the focus and emphasis of this commission. Jesus tells his disciples to go, yes, circumstantial participle, but make disciples. That's their call. He commissions them, those who've been with him, who've been following him, they're to now go and make more followers of him. As he has done, so they're to do. And this call, notice, is is to extend beyond their current location. The call is to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, of all ethnicities, not just Jews. He doesn't say, hey, stay in Jerusalem and just build your little kingdom here, but make disciples of all nations. The reason being, the risen Lord's authority is universal. I have all authority, so go and make disciples of all nations. This kingdom is going to be global, which we see carried out in the book of Acts. But so Jesus says, go make disciples. Well, well, what do you do? How do you make disciples? That's the main verb. Well, there's two additional participles and a participle, I had to look this up, my kids could tell me, but I had to look it up. Participles are simply words formed from a verb used as an adjective. So the two participles that explain or fill out what it means to make disciples are baptizing and teaching. Those are verbs, but they're used as adjectives to describe the making disciples. And so, baptize and teach are how you make disciples according to the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Jesus says, to make disciples, you baptize and you teach. You baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them, that is disciples, to obey everything I've commanded you. And so baptism is important because Jesus leaves this commission as his last words in the, recorded in Matthew's gospel. And this sacrament or this ordinance is set apart by Jesus as the initiatory rite of following Jesus. If you wanna be my disciple, you're baptized. 
Not only does Jesus launch this universal mission, he also launches baptism as the primary sacrament of initiation into the Christian faith. Because this baptism, Jesus says, is into the name, into relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that's, that's how you start. When, when you become a follower of Jesus, you are brought into fellowship with the triune God and you're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a representation of what has actually happened in following Jesus. And this baptism into the triune God, into the name of the triune God, sets the trajectory for your entire Christian life. And so if you're a follower of Christ, just, just for your information, if you're a follower of Christ here today, if you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, but you've never been baptized, then you have yet to obey this simple command. A simple command that marks out the beginning of the Christian life. And so if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized because Jesus says, be baptized. But, but Jesus, according to Jesus, the church, the disciples, his followers, make disciples by baptizing them into the name of the Father of the Son, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Which, as we learn from the rest of the New Testament, baptism assumes a prior working. So the, so the assumption is you're, you're proclaiming the gospel and the gospel is going forth, the message of the kingdom that Christ has come and he's been crucified, buried, and raised again. And as it's proclaimed, as the gospel goes forth, whether it's from a pulpit or it's at your dinner table or a work setting or your front yard or your dining room, wherever it's proclaimed, the gospel is shared. And once it's received and believed, accepted, when someone becomes a follower of Christ, the first step is to be baptized. You are converted, you're saved, you become a Christian, and then the first step is to be baptized. That is what Jesus says. The Great Commission is to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the first step in being a follower of Jesus. But there's more to the life of the disciple than being baptized, right? That's not it. It's the beginning, but it's not the end. The disciples are taught also that they must teach the disciples to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. I think we have to recognize this is the harder part of making disciples. This is the part that takes a lifetime. And this gets to the center of the mission of the church. You don't make disciples simply by evangelizing. In fact, I would argue that in this case, you can only make disciples of those who are already following Christ. You, you disciple Christians, you evangelize non-Christians with the gospel. So I think discipleship is what Christians do. They, they help others follow Jesus. I think Christians are called to evangelize, certainly but you evangelize non-Christians so that they become Christians and then they follow Christ. But it's critical to note that the, the command here is not to evangelize, but to perform the broader and deeper task of discipling the nations. One con commentator says this, many denominations and mission groups misunderstand this and spend all their effort winning new converts rather than anchoring the new converts in the Christian faith. Baptism is a very important first step, but must never be considered the last step. Because that's not the only part of the commission. Yes, you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also you teach them to observe or obey everything I've commanded. This implies that discipleship is, is marked by ethical obedience, by a walk, by a way of life. To be a disciple and to make disciples means that you are personally following Jesus and you help others follow Jesus. That's what it means to make disciples. You're just helping someone else follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus means observing all that he's commanded. There, there's a walk. There's an ethical dynamic here. You obey Jesus. He is Lord and he sets out the, the trajectory of your life. 
And Matthew is ending his gospel. If you remember, there were five discourses throughout Matthew's gospel that were dedicated only to Jesus's teachings. And so Matthew would, I think he would tell us, hey, you want to know all that he taught? Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Go out and read about the sending out of the disciples. Go back and read the Olivet Discourse. I think Matthew has, has in his gospel five sets of five uh, discourses to, to preserve all that Jesus taught. So that if you want to know what Jesus taught, go back and read his gospel. And so this is the Great Commission, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so the, the simple way that I want to conclude this passage and the, the Gospel of Matthew is simply to ask the question, how am I making disciples? That, that's, the, that's the culmination of this Gospel. He's resurrected and he's commissioning his disciples and he's calling them to make disciples. And so I would simply ask you to ask yourself to ponder, how am I making disciples? Put it another way, how are you helping other people follow Jesus? You have relationships with other people in your life. I guarantee you do, even if it's just one. But if you're a follower of Christ, you've been given relationships with others so that you might help them follow Jesus. If they're not Christians, you've been given their relationship to share the gospel with them. But if they're Christians, you've been given a relationship to help them follow Jesus better. And so the question is, how are you doing it? This is a simple question that every Christian and every church must honestly answer. The resurrected Christ, the one with all authority who has promised to be with us until the end, has commissioned us to make disciples. How are you doing it? If you can't answer that question, perhaps it's a better question for you to ask yourself, are you doing it? Maybe you're not doing it. I don't want to assume that this great commission is being carried out by every Christian here because the reality is, it's probably not. And that's okay. The Lord, the Lord isn't going to remove his presence from you. He's still committed. Commission still stands until he comes back. So, so maybe not all of you, not all of us are making disciples. But that doesn't, doesn't change the fact that Jesus commands his church and his people to make disciples. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he's commanded you to help others follow him. That's the call. Therefore, if you're a follower of Christ, you ought to aim to obey and help others obey, and it's never too late to start. You, you have one life. I have one life. You can't undo what has been done. You can't undo what hasn't been done. You can't go back. But as you sit here today, if you're a follower of Christ, you have today and tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow, maybe you don't even have tomorrow, but, but you can walk in obedience today. And so ask yourself, what can I do to help someone else follow Jesus? Ask the Lord to, to give you wisdom to know, to, to give you relationships to know. As church members, we ought to be discipling one another. And then the last question I simply would ask in, in light of, of what we've all, all that we've seen today is just as I'm, I'm sure that not everyone here is, is actively making disciples, I'm even more sure that not everyone here is a follower of Christ. And so the last question is simply, maybe for you, you need to ask, am I a disciple? Are you a follower of Christ? If not, today's the day that, that he calls you to follow me. Christ is calling you to follow him, which starts by confessing your sin, by repenting, and by trusting in him. And so maybe that's your call today, is I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to repent of my sins. I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want, to, I want to obey Christ with my whole life. I want to do what he says. And if that's you, I would, I would call you to do that. 
Because everything that we're reading about, it is past tense. Christ was born, yes, but, but more than that, Christ came, was crucified, was buried, was raised, and is coming back again future. But all the work has been done, and he invites you to follow him. He's died to, to bring you near to him, to bring you into relationship with him, and to give you eternal life now that will extend into all eternity. So if you're not a, if you're not a Christian, I would call, I would call you to, to trust Christ today. What better day than December 24th, 2023? Put your faith in Christ. I would, I would urge you, and I'd love to talk with you. Others would love to talk with you about that. But every single person who's one to Christ must be anchored in Christ and taught how to live for Christ in day-to-day living. And that's our call. May God help us to do this. Let me pray as we close.